0: My name is Daniel, and it's, uh, it's great to be able to share God's word with you this morning. And church family, we're beginning another uh, Bible engagement series, as you heard, on the screen uh, just a few seconds ago. Over the next two months, we will be journeying through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, uh, together on Sundays, but also during the week. So do download that Bible engagement app and follow along in the, in the readings every day and even in the engagement tools that it makes uh, available to you. If you're new at WPA... Uh, you will quickly come to learn that our heart as a church is to help you get familiar with the entirety of Scripture. Not just portions of it, but the entirety from cover to cover. Uh, as we truly believe that God's Word is, uh, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. That will be equipped for every good work that He has for us. Alright, well if you were with us last summer, you might remember that we journeyed through the book of Jeremiah. And in that book, we learned about God's dealings with his people in Judah. Due to their blatant disregard for the covenant that, had, uh, uh, that they had made with him, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to destroy the region of Judah, the capital Jerusalem, the temple, and then forcibly exile the Jewish inhabitants into Babylon. And as a refresher this morning... Um, Let me read a summary of these historical events as it is crucial for our appreciation of what is going on in Ezra and Nehemiah. And for that, let me turn our attention to 2 Chronicles 36, which in my Bible is just one page over from the book of Ezra. So, I'm going to read it um, before we get into our main text this morning. So, here it goes. 2 Chronicles 36, 14-21 to says this, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful. They followed all the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, desecrating the temple of the Lord that had been consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, or the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God. And the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon, and they became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord, spoken through Jeremiah, was fulfilled the land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. Now this passage describes an incredible turn of events for the people of Judah. The Bible doesn't give us much insight into what it was like in exile, but no doubt there was a great sense of loss. And not only physically, in the destructions of their cities and homes, and quite significantly, the temple but a loss in their identity and culture as a people. Now, I don't know what it is like to be forcibly displaced from a country, but I've had conversations with a number of refugees and have heard their stories. One man I talked to recently from a very unstable and dangerous part of the world told me that he is happy to be in Canada, but he would have preferred to have stayed in his country with his extended family and neighbors and culture but it just was not safe to do so. And talking with him, I got, I, I got the sense of loss, of disappointment and despair as to what could be or what ought to have been. And so the people of Judah are in this foreign land with the temple, the palace, the city walls of Jerusalem all destroyed, and they're back in Babylon. Uh, in fact, Mesopotamia, if you know the story of Abraham, the place which Abraham had left, and the land flowing with milk and honey that was given to them in the exodus had become this pitiful, depopulated, and desolate wasteland. And it is into this backdrop, friends, that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah pick up the story about two generations later from those devastating events. And we'll see that God had not given up on his people, nor had he altered his purposes for them. All right, let's now turn our attention to this morning's text. Would you stand with me as we corporately read from Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. That's Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Ready? Let's read. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, Prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out all the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his God. Cyrus king of Persia had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Chesh Bazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And this word um, is living and active, and you want to speak to us today. So I pray that God, whatever you have providentially orchestrated this morning to speak to your people. I pray that that would take place and your spirit would move. I thank you, Lord, for strengthening me to do my very best to communicate. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. So friends, the passage we just read tells of a great moment in the history of the people of God. See, while they were in Babylon, a new empire arose, the Persian Empire. Under King Cyrus, Defeated the Babylonians and replaced them in 539 BC. And under his leadership, one of the first actions he took was to send home the captive peoples who had been brought as exiles into Babylon. And this is what Ezra is referring to, which are the events in 538 BC when a group of Judean exiles came back home to rebuild the temple. Now, I should mention that what Ezra is writing about here takes place a whole lifetime before he's even there. Chapter 1 to 6 of Ezra is a historical survey informing us of the pioneers who returned to Jerusalem about 80 years before Ezra himself. And although the whole book bears his name, Ezra does not appear in the story until chapter 7. But he begins his book by including these details Because they are very significant since they reveal the fulfillment of God's word. And let's turn to that, the fulfillment of God's word. In verse 1, it said, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the reversal of the exile was not a random set of fortune or good luck that the Israelites experienced. Ezra being well-versed in the scriptures explains what is happening through a biblical lens. God had shared his plans years ago through his prophets and it is to those messages that Ezra points the people to. Verse one of our passage highlighted the prophet Jeremiah and the word of the Lord he had to share. Sure enough, Jeremiah 25 verses one to 14 speaks of the nation serving the king of, uh, of Babylon for 70 years. And then in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 11, the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, and not to harm you. Plans, plans to give you hope and a future. And if you know that passage, this is the context of all that. See, way back then, even in judgment, God had given his word to Judah that the exile would be over in 70 years and there would be uh, be a future and a hope for them, even in despair. And God made good on his word, friends. In fact, he did even better. The fall of Jerusalem took place in uh, 587 BC, which was the main and largest deportation. But there was an earlier one in five ninety seven BC, and then in the, a token one that like went as far as back as six oh five, where Daniel and his friends were taken from Judah into Babylon, and even the longest of these spans uh, as falls short of the allotted seventy years. And so it's so amazing to see that even in judgment, when the people deserved every bit of it for the sins they had committed, God reveals His mercy. And I don't know how many of us are in this room this morning that can testify to that kind of mercy. You know, we lived our lives in a selfish and self-indulgent manner. And then we experienced the relational fallouts that it caused. The broken dreams. The physical consequences. And the guilt and the shame. You know, we recognized that we deserved every bit of it. And time and time again we were warned of the consequences. Others tried to tell us of the harm, but we ignored them and thought it would not happen to us. I've got this figured out, we said to ourselves. But then we found ourselves in a place of pain and brokenness, lost and without hope. But when we took the step of faith and turned to the Lord, Thomas says in Psalm 103. Has anybody experienced this kind of grace and goodness of God? Have any of you come to learn for yourselves that God's word can be trusted and that he will do what he says he will do? Oh friends, if you're hearing this message this morning and you are in that difficult place of shame and brokenness and despair, Friends, let me tell you that, that however difficult it may be in that state, it is actually a good place to be because it is at that point where we are ready to look up. And when we do, we will find that God will meet us. As Psalm 51, King David reminds us, the sacrifice God desires is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. In Israel's broken state, God reminds them he is still, he still has a good plan for them. Yes, there was a season of pain and purification in exile. But God was now fulfilling his word to them that he would bring them back to the land. And Ezra has no doubt in his mind that the most important agent at work is the living word of God, friends. Friends, we need to capture or perhaps even recapture uh, that confidence in God's word for our lives. And also that this word uh, controls and directs history. And I want us to look at that further in verse 1 in seeing God's providence being revealed in this passage. And the passage it said, The Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to make a, procl- a proclamation throughout his realm, uh, and also to put it into writing. And Ezra 1 is all about God's providence. Now, this isn't a word we use very regularly these days. So let me help us unpack this a little bit, or, or better understand what it means. Providence means that God has an ongoing relationship with his creation and directs his creatures and the whole universe ultimately to fulfill his purpose. See, we read that King Cyrus' heart was moved, or maybe your translation read, stirred up, in making an official proclamation or pronouncement that would allow the Jews to return to their homeland. And Ezra makes it clear that it was God who had done the stirring up of the king's heart. And amazingly, the prophet Isaiah uh, prophesied that this would take place, even naming the king about 150 years in advance of this, with astonishing precision. So let me show you what I mean by this. In Isaiah 41, it says, who has stirred up the one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? Or in Isaiah 41, continuing, it says, I have stirred up one from the north. In Isaiah 44, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. In Isaiah 45, this is what the Lord says to his, anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor. And finally, Isaiah 45 says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Pretty amazing. This is 150 years in advance. And Ezra is connecting the dots for his readers and pointing out that God has indeed done what he said he would do. Just like Jeremiah, we learn of God using Nebuchadnezzar to fulfill God's plan of judgment on his people. Here in Ezra, we learn that Cyrus is God's servant to fulfill God's plan of restoration for his people. And From these, we can notice the incredible precision, precision of God's overruling of history and the amazing accuracy with which the living words recorded all of this. So what did this stirring of the heart, of the king's heart, look like? Since he was no mere puppet, what specifically motivated King Cyrus to let the people of Judah return to their homeland? Now this is something that has intrigued uh, historians and Bible commentators alike. And many believe that the prophet Daniel, um, who worked in the king's administration, could have been instrumental in this stirring up of Cyrus. He could have shown the king... The prophecies of Jeremiah 25, or Jeremiah 29, which referred to the punishment of Babylon and the end of Israel's exile. And if he showed Cyrus those prophecies, then he would have also brought to his attention Isaiah chapter 44, which mentions Cyrus by name about 150 years before he's born. They believe that this led Cyrus to become a believer in Yahweh, and as a result was acting out of a special interest in Judah in letting them go back to their homeland. Now, could this have been the case? Yes, of course. But there's another piece of information to consider. In 1879, archaeologists discovered a clay cylinder in the temple of the moon goddess at Ur, which King Cyrus repaired. This artifact is commonly referred to as the Cyrus Cylinder, and on it are writings documenting the policy of allowing people to return to their homeland. The Cyrus Edict here in Ezra, chapter 1, is probably another example of a similar policy that is tailored to Judean audience. This has led many more uh, modern commentators to believe that it was likely a political move more than a spiritually motivated decision. Cyrus likely had his eye on the possibility of further expansion into Egypt, and a grateful population in Judah would have served as a fine springboard for future conquests should they be considered. But whatever motivated the king to enact the edict, the Lord was working things out according to his purposes. In fact, two years before this favorable edict toward the people of Judah, we learn from history that God had been um, smoothing out a path of victory for Cyrus to take over the empire and give him the power to make it possible to make such a decree. And as I think about this, I think, friends, how often do we fail to trust God in light of our circumstances? How many times do we worry unnecessarily about what the future holds? How many times do we try to help God out by putting matters into our own hands? Because we don't see things changing fast enough. And Ezra's chronicling of history is intended to remind God's people that God is sovereign over his creation and that we can trust in him. And some of you need to hear that this morning because you're in that season of deep longing. You know, maybe it's for a son or a daughter or a family member to come to know the Lord and you've been praying. Friends, keep praying. And keep being that person you need to be to reflect God's character to them. That when it's the right time, you'll be there. Maybe you long to be in a romantic relationship. And if that's you, trust God by committing that desire to him. And while you're trusting, become the man or woman or the husband or wife that God intends you to be. Now, others of you might be in between jobs right now and you're job hunting. Maybe you've experienced a lot of rejection in your job applications. Uh, I me encourage you to not worry. Keep going. Keep, keep applying to places because it's not just a job that you want, but the workplace that God wants for you to shape you and form you into the person he wants you to be. While being his agent in the environment he needs you to be in. And it's always so interesting that this was in my notes this morning. There's somebody coming up to me after first service, and he's like, Pastor Daniel, I need to tell you a story. Remember that last time I'm looking for a job, and, you, and we prayed together. This is what he says, 73 applications. And then he gets this call from the right one. And he went into the story of why it's the right one. Friends, we need to do our part, but we need to trust God to do his part. And maybe you've been looking. Maybe there's a desire in your heart. Maybe it's a home that you are looking for and just things aren't coming together in the right timing. You've missed out on some seemingly good options due to you know, a bid, not going, uh, ac- a bid not going through or accepted or a lease, somebody beating you to that. Friends, it's not just any home you want. It's the one God has for you and your family to reflect him in your neighborhood and to bring him glory. Commit your way to the Lord. And trust in him to guide your steps. And I'm so amazed at how God orchestrates things in our lives when we bend our way to him and trust in his timing. Now, I know this isn't always a dramatic thing that we see. We don't always have these dramatic encounters with God's providence, but they certainly help to build our faith and, trust, and, 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 and to know that he is with us and he's near and he knows what we're going through. You know, when Crystal and I were moving to Waterloo, we had our eyes on on, on a number of homes. We had prayed about our price point and committed our next steps to the Lord. And we went through the emotional process of visiting a number of homes and envisioning ourselves in them. We submitted offers one after another and experienced the emotional letdowns after being told our bid was rejected. The one that hurt the most, we missed out by $1,200 dollars. And we went through the range of emotions and and thoughts in our mind. Should we just settle for something different? Should we overextend our budget? Maybe what we sensed from the Lord was wishful thinking. And all of these sorts of thoughts permeated our minds. We just wanted to speed up the process and see things materialize. But in the end, we stuck with what we knew was true that God was for us and we could trust in him even when we couldn't see how the process would unfold. And a few weeks went by after our, our last failed offer attempt and I got a random call from someone in our church about a meeting him, about meeting him at, this, at, this, at this property that had nothing to do with the home purchase, by the way. It's totally unrelated to home buying. Well, it turns out I was at the right place, at the right time to meet the owners and spark a conversation regarding the sale of their home, a home that was not even on the market and it wasn't going to be for another year. We agreed to a price point that was well within the budget that Crystal and I had sense was right from the get-go. Furthermore, we met some wonderful people in the process and we still keep in touch regarding the house today. And at the end of the experience and looking back at it after all these years, we were so thankful that we didn't force the process or try to make things happen in our own timing in the way we wanted. Because God had more than a a transaction in mind for us. It was an encounter it was a testimony, that, and it was, it was his, 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 his divine providence that he wanted to reveal in our lives. And Sometimes we want things so bad that we rush the process and miss out on what God is trying to do in our lives. And we need to remember that God's plan and purposes are best, and that we should align ourselves with those instead of worrying or putting matters into our own hands. And this is the encouragement that is in line with New Testament and Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Do you remember this? This is what he says in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than, uh, more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin yet. I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you little faith. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans are after, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. See, God knows what we need, and he works in mysterious ways. And when we trust in him, friends, we can see his favor in our lives. And this is certainly what happened and what transpired for the people of Judah. And so let's see that favor as it's shown in verse four and six. And it said this And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to the freewill offerings. Now, friends, this is a fascinating turn of events. See, for two generations, They were part of a forced resettlement campaign by an enemy nation, and now they've been given the green light to head back to their homeland to rebuild the temple and worship God. But it's amazing that they are not just given the opportunity to go back, but the king showers them with resources to accomplish the task of rebuilding the temple. He does this by opening up the royal treasury and returning the temple articles that had been taken by King Nebuchadnezzar years earlier. And he also encouraged, this is crazy, and he encourages the non-Jewish people of the kingdom to support the initiative by providing silver and gold, goods and livestock. Friends, that is the favor of the Lord. But there's a theme going on over here that's an important one for me to highlight. Because we might not catch it out for first glance but a devout Jew would certainly have noticed the parallels between what is going on here in Ezra chapter 1 and in the story of the exodus of God's people uh, hundreds of years earlier and you might you might remember what I'm talking about over here if you know the exodus story the the Hebrew people were showered with gifts from their Egyptian neighbors and here too they are being blessed with significant goods for their journey but what was the purpose of their journey do you remember? In Exodus, it is to worship the Lord, and here in Ezra, it is to worship him in rebuilding the temple. That's really important in regards to the favor of the Lord. Because you might ask yourself, why is it so important for the temple to be rebuilt? And why does Ezra put so much emphasis on the rebuilding of the temple, as we will see throughout the books as we read it? And it's because of his concern for the abiding presence of God amongst his people. Ezra understood that since the beginning, God has desired to have fellowship with the people he has created. See, God walked among them in the garden, but then the fall created a barrier between a holy God and a sinful people. And after the Exodus, God instructed that a tabernacle was to be made where he would live among his people. The tabernacle and the temple were not just places for holding worship services, but rather the setting for God to make his presence known in an unmistakable way. And while the temple served an important function, at the heart of what we read in the Bible is that God is not confined to the temple, but is both up there and down here. See, King Solomon understood this as he's dedicating the temple in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. He says, But will God really dwell on earth? Question mark. The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? So while the temple did not contain God, it reflected God and was a place for people to meet with him. This was super important. And it's also super important for the New Testament. And and if we fast forward to the New Testament, there's also this emphasis on building of a temple. But it's not a physical temple, it's a spiritual temple. Paul writes, he says, in him, referring to Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And similarly, Peter says this. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, God is doing the building by his spirit. And we as believers, we as the body of believers are the spiritual temple that both Paul and Peter are referring to. And as we surrender our lives and ourselves to God and prioritize Him with our worship and and worshipful lives lived out seven days a week, God is putting the pieces together in building the temple here on earth. God's desire is that each one of us will be a part of what He wants to do, both collectively and individually. And God wants to make himself known in the Waterloo region, friends. And it's not going to be through a physical building as much as it is going to be through his spiritual people, the building that he's creating in us as, as spiritual stones, going out and doing normal day in and day out things. See, we bring the temple, which, remember, is God's presence. And remember, Remember, through the fall, God, uh, that there's a separation between God and man, and God longs to have fellowship with His creation. And we, as His temple, are carriers of God's presence to people in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our family, at the grocery store, at the gym at the repair shop, at the coffee shop, wherever and whenever we are going and going anywhere, God wants to make his presence known to the people around us. Because God has people he is working on, friends. And we get to be the people that deliver his presence to them in their moment of need. The important point that both the Old Testament and New Testament is making that God wants to be with us and he wants to make himself known. But friends, let me ask ourselves, let me ask us, are these really our priorities? Are these our priorities as we wake up each day? God, make your presence known to the people I interact with. See, the people Ezra is referring to understood the importance of building the temple because their desire was to know God and to make him known. And as a result, we read that God blessed them incredibly. We see his favor poured out on them in unexpected ways through the material blessing to accomplish their mission. And often I wonder, friends, do we want the favor of the Lord without us actually being a part of the plan of the Lord? And friends, when we prioritize the things of God, his favor and blessing follows. But doesn't this sound like what Jesus said in Matthew 6, continue on in the passage that I read earlier on? It said, but seek favor first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. All those things that you're longing for in your heart, friends, the things that you're praying into, God knows you need him. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Now, I need to wrap things up for us this morning. And so this morning, to recap, we learned from Ezra 1 that God's word is trustworthy. God used Jeremiah and others to speak hope to the exiles in what was a a troubling experience of loss. And even in judgment, which the people recognized they deserved, God was merciful. In his providence, God was orchestrating events throughout the world to set up the return of his people to the promised land. And God moved the heart of a newly enthroned king to enact a policy that would allow the people of Judah to return and rebuild the temple, but not empty-handed. God's favor was clearly evident on these returnees as they sought to prioritize the worship of God and to make him known. Friends, I'm not sure what you're going through this morning, but the encouragement from God's word is to trust, trust in his word that what he will, what he has said he will do. And to have faith in in his ability in whatever impossible situation you might be going through right now. Now when you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we don't need to worry because he will show us his favor. Would you bow with me in prayer this